In last week's homily, we heard how Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. He was in the low parts of the world near the Dead Sea. And we were strengthened to know that if he who is fully human conquered temptation, then when we're united with him, we also can conquer with him against temptation. So just a little uh, little check on our, our homework from last week. How'd you do on avoiding those occasions for sin? Uh, if you did great, great, uh, keep going. If you didn't do so well, if there were some moments where you kind of chose to go towards those occasions of, th- of sin, today's a new day. And if you want to go to confession, just call the office. We'll get that set up uh, ASAP or come uh, at a normal time. This week in the gospel, on uh, the second Sunday of Lent, we hear about the transfiguration. Jesus has gone from one of the lowest places in the earth to one of the highest. He's gone from the Dead Sea to a... Uh, the Mount Tabor. Now, Mount Tabor is not much of a mountain, but it is a high place. And in uh, in in moving from one the low to the high, Jesus shows us that in every place in our life, in the lows and in the highs, He is present. He's always there. What's Jesus doing on the top of Mount Tabor? He takes Peter, James, and John, and us spiritually up there, and He's transfigured before us. High places in the Bible, if you look through the Old Testament, all of them have something to do. Uh, when, when people go to a high place, if they're encountering God in some way. Um, Moses, for example, he encounters God uh, on Mount Sinai. He goes up and he receives the law. Likewise, uh, <clears throat> Elijah encounters the Lord on uh, a mountain. And uh, so also in, in many other situations. Now, um, also, it, it, it's almost always the case that sacrifice is offered in the Old Testament on a high place or in a high place. And those two things are, are not inconsequentially related, but rather they go together. Sacrifice is offered. Today in the Transfiguration, we see the purpose of our life. Jesus reveals to his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and to us, that for which we're made. What do I mean by that? Well, in the transfiguration, we see how humanity is completely at the service of divinity. Completely, 100%, transparently, Jesus' divinity flows through his humanity and, so to speak, explodes almost uh, with, with divinity, with the glory of being united with the second person of the Holy Trinity. And so that's what we're called to as well. If you remember from my homilies in August, we're heavenly hobos. We're made for heaven. We're made for an eternal communion, to share in the eternal communion with Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, And Jesus shows us that glory to which we're called today in being transfigured before his disciples. We're called to glory, to really share in the glory of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to receive the divine approbation, which Christ shares with each one of us, if we desire it. The glory of God is man fully alive, and man fully alive is the vision of God. That's what St. Irenaeus says. We get tastes of this in these moments of transfiguration, uh, in a certain sense throughout our lives. You kind of see the glory of God to which we're called, breaking through these thin places where reality is seen to be what it actually is, more than what we can sense or taste or touch or, 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 or see.
The transfiguration is one of those moments, for sure, for Peter, James, and John, and it can be for us as well. Human nature is at service to divinity, and it reaches its apex, the, the top. Christ does this in order to reduce the scandal of the cross. By his loving foresight, he allows us to have a taste for a short time of the contemplation of eternal joy so that we might bear persecution bravely. He strengthens his disciples to bear the weight of eternal glory, which will involve first seeing their master go to the cross and then imitating him, maybe years later, maybe just a short time later, in going to the cross, in his sacrifice. Now, friends, Jesus does all this, in other words, to arouse the disciples' desire for heaven. And he does it for us as well. He arouses our desire. Sometimes we mistakenly believe that strong desire is opposed to Christian sensibility. But this is not Christianity, friends, but rather a dangerous stoicism. Um, stoicism is that philosophy which kind of says we should tamp down our emotions. We should get rid of our passions. We should um, not feel strongly. And there is a certain holy indifference that as Christians we're supposed to have, but it's not an indifference when it comes to God. No, a passionate love of God and of our neighbor with our entire person is necessary. We want to love God with all of our heart, strength, soul, mind, and our neighbor as ourself. And no part of us should be separated from that. Our passions are part of what it means to be human. You know, so often it's actually, we think it's the case that strong desire leads to sin, but it's actually the opposite. Our desires are too weak, not strong enough. That's what Jesus says. C.S. Lewis remarks on this. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in a slum because we can't imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We're far too easily pleased, friends. And thus we forget the glory to which we're directed. We forget the goal. We forget, uh, we, we lose our way because you can't go somewhere if you don't know where you're going. Our Lord wishes then to increase our desire for heaven. How often do we think about heaven, friends? That's the question today. If that's our goal, how often are we thinking about it? But Jesus does something more today. He goes further than simply offering us where we're going. He gives us the way that we're to achieve this glory in the very act of showing us the end. He shows us the means as well. He shows us that the glory of the resurrection comes only through sacrifice. And that the sacrifice of faith, the sacrifice which is pleasing to God, and which God asks us, it requires always some sort of death. In the story that we hear in the first reading, uh, we hear that awful story of, of the binding of Isaac, the sacrifice of Isaac. And we might look at that and go, what is going on here, right? God is a God of compassion and kindness and love, and, and he cares for his people. And, and then we have this moment where he says to Abraham, take your son, your only beloved son, the one whom you love, and offer him up in sacrifice. What are we to make of that? How are we to deal with that as Christians? You know, it's important to pay attention to the first line of the reading today in the first reading. It says, God put Abraham to the test. God put Abraham to the test. 
No, there's no point at which we're abandoned, ever. There's no moment when God is absent and there's no moment when God is not working for our good. But sometimes we make idols. Sometimes we struggle to believe that God is actually working for our good when it seems, uh, when, when it's dark and we can't see how or what he's doing. And I think that's what happens in this story of Abraham and Isaac. See, Isaac, Isaac is the most precious thing that Abraham has, the most precious person to him. He loves him so much. He loves him so much. And, and the most precious things in our lives, friends, are the things that are also the most likely to become idols. They're the things that could, they don't always, but they could keep us from loving God well. And I think that's what's going on here. See, Isaac represents not only, uh, he's not only Abraham's child, but he's the child of the promise. And God has promised to Abraham that he will make him a, a great multitude already. And Abraham has to trust God, even when he can't see. Now, we should also note that Isaac is not a little boy in this story. He's a full-grown man. Um, it says in one part of the, it, the reading actually takes some disparate parts and puts them together a little bit. And there's a whole intermediate section that I wish they would have put in there. Um, but in that intermediate section, it talks about how, how Abraham laid the wood for the sacrifices immolation on his son, Isaac. And, uh, you know, there's, it's an impossibility that a child would be able to carry that much wood. And so Abraham, Abraham and Isaac are not, Abraham is not forcing Isaac to do something. I mean, Abraham's 99 years old at this point, and Isaac is a youth, 20 years old, 18 years old. He certainly could could take his father on and push him away. And so Isaac is a willing victim. Why is he a willing victim? Because he offers himself. He allows, he trusts Abraham. Now Isaac, on his way up the mountain, he asks a question of his father. He says, Father, here's the fire. Here's the wood for the sacrifice. Where is the sacrifice? Where is the lamb that we're going to offer? And you can imagine the anguish of Abraham saying, to his son, his beloved, his precious son, God will provide. That's what faith looks like. That's why Abraham is our father in faith. God asks us sometimes, friends, to trust him completely that he is indeed working for our good, even when we can't see how or what. There are in our lives, and we're probably like the disciples and like Isaac, when we say, where is the lamb moments? There are moments when we can't see what God's doing exactly there the darkness of faith, and we ask why or what, and those aren't bad questions. We should ask the question, where is the lamb? How will God save us? But our obedience to him and to his commands cannot be dependent upon getting a clear answer. We can't wait for that clear answer. We just have to act first. We have to act in faith. That's what the obedience of faith means. That's why Abraham is revered and Isaac is revered as well. Because it's not so much the thing that we offer which is precious to God, but our interior conversion 
to him, which makes our sacrifice pleasing to God. It is that which leads to the glory of the resurrection. It is death to our self-sufficiency and our small plans, which leads to resurrection. The messenger of the Lord comes to Abraham and he says, because you've done this, because you have not withheld from me even your own beloved son, I will make you a great nation. The transfiguration shows us that to which we are called, which can only be achieved through sacrifice. But we're not alone in that sacrifice, and that's what's so beautiful, brothers and sisters, for our sacrifice cannot be sufficient. But God himself did not abandon us, but gave his only beloved son that we might have life through him. He did not spare his own son. Who can be against us? That's what St. Paul tells us. Rather, our sacrifice is offered and must be offered always in union with the one sacrifice which pleases God in Christ. In him, we have the full pledge of our salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord. Where is Jesus today? That's the question that Isaac asks. He says, where is the lamb? The question is answered definitively by John the Baptist who cries out, Here's the Lamb of God who says, Behold the Lamb of God. And it's answered over and over again every time we come to Mass. When I say, Behold the Lamb of God, when a priest holds up the host and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Friends, think about that. Consider that Jesus is present and he wishes you to exercise your faith. Here at the altar, at the altar, always is the pledge of that sacrifice which leads to resurrection and glory. Pray, brothers, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father.